Welcome back to the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andy Tempe. On the Balancing Act, we talk to business leaders and industry experts to explore the balancing acts we play in our professional lives and learn about the events that put rocket boosters behind their career success. Today, we have John Danaher joining us. John is the former president of medical and veterinary education at Ed Tallum Global Education, was president of education and global clinical solutions at Elsevier, and worked with me at Kaplan and served as president of the Schools of Health Sciences and Nursing at Kaplan University, which is now Purdue Global. As you might expect, the theme of today's show is healthcare education. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Andy. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a, a lot of fun talking to you today. I'm uh, particularly interested in exploring uh, the world of healthcare education uh, because, uh, you know, you, you work in it. And uh, my son, our son, uh, Brandon, is uh, is also in the medical field and is a medical educator. So I'm really keenly interested in what you have to say. Uh, John, before we get started, we ask all of our guests this question. Please tell our listeners your story. Sure. Andy, I think the most, um, the, the, the driver that got me onto the course that I pursued was time that I spent in Washington, D.C. after I had done my residency in medicine um, and, and was a board-certified internist. And what I did was I did something called a White House Fellowship and I worked for the Secretary of Health and Human Services, who at that time was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Lewis Sullivan. And what that experience uh, illuminated for me is that Dr. Sullivan and I were very knowledgeable about the healthcare aspect of healthcare delivery. But we knew very little to nothing, to be quite frank, about the financing, the underwriting um, of healthcare. And so that experience working um, at the time it was called HICFA, now it's called CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, that experience, um, and, and there were other agencies, the NIH, the FDA, the, et cetera, the CDC, it really opened my eyes that healthcare is a tremendously big business. And, and to really understand it and to be, to be, um, uh, uh, a, to be engaged in shaping the dialogue, you had to know more than, than just about healthcare delivery. You had to understand the economics and finance that underpin healthcare. So that was that was the um, that time in Washington D.C. as a White House fellow was the thing that was most seminal for for influencing my career. So the. Is that is that your rocket booster moment, or are there other things that you can look back to in uh, in your career, especially as an educator, and go, "Wow, that was really pivotal for me." Yeah, it it was. It was. Let me put it this way: it was the first true rocket booster uh, for me, and the reason it was was a gentleman um, from from Stanford Business School. A professor there uh, came into Washington D.C. to talk with the secretary to talk about healthcare reform, and his name uh, uh, is is Professor Alan Entoven. And so I went up to him after he talked about managed care and managed competition, all these things that were were shaping um, the healthcare delivery system. 
And I went up to him and I said, Professor Antonio, I'm going back to Stanford. And, you know, this is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing that you have to really understand um, economics and finance. And so he put me under his wing and he said, you're, you're just the type of person I'm looking for, um, physicians who are interested um, in these aspects. And he said, you know, come to Stanford Business School and um, I, I just started a fellowship, et cetera. So what, why it was truly a rocket booster for me is it not only uh, set a, a, a trajectory for me, a direction for me, but it also provided me a mentor. And, and I can't say enough about the value of a mentor, you know, who, who not only looks after you during uh, a certain period of your career, but really longitudinally is there for you to always, um, uh, you know, check your bearings. So, so that was the first real one. And again, we, we can talk more about other ones, but that's the one that put me on the trajectory um, that, that really has, has uh, defined my career and my life. Yeah, we'll definitely explore the mentorship uh, angle later in the show. Uh, but uh, let's start with balancing acts. That's the name of the show. So we should talk about a balancing act or two. Uh, in, in the world of medical education, what's the most important balancing act that the leader of a medical education institution has to play? Yeah, Andy, it, it, it differs. It differs. And so when you work for the head of, when, when you are the head of a not-for-profit academic institution, what really, um, the concern, because you tend to, you know, for example, there's 160 not-for-profit medical schools in the U.S., or approximately 160, um, you get the pick of the litter and you, you, it's, it's, you get to choose the cream of the crop. So you're less concerned about academic outcomes. Usually everyone passes the USMLE part one and passes the subsequent part two, part three, et cetera. What you're really focused on when you're running a not-for-profit uh, medical school or nursing school, et cetera, are the amount of grants that are coming in, the, the you know, placement, you, you can say how silly some of these ranking, you know, US News and World, et cetera, but still, they, they very much uh, define um, um, excellence, we, you know, in our, in our society. And so, so as, a, as a leader of a not-for-profit educational institution, what you're really focused on is, by and large, getting those grants in, often research-oriented, and, and ensuring um, that you're, you know, you're in whatever area you are, be it research or be it primary care, that you're, you've distinguished yourself and and um, and establish yourself as a leader in that in that area, with for profit and and again, Andy, as you said, you and I worked at Kaplan together. Um, you there's much more of a need to focus on the academic outcomes, and and also um, and also quite frankly, the financials. The financials are more of a uh, of a uh, of, of an everyday a thing that you are aware of. And so let's just talk about the academic outcomes. Um, when, when you and I were at Kaplan, we very much sought to serve non-traditional students. And those were students who had lots of other things going on in their life, and they didn't necessarily have the benefits that, um, that other 
you know, students who were fortunate enough to go to and pay high tuitions, et cetera, had. They didn't have all those benefits. And so when you, the inevitable thing that happens is they come less prepared. And so in, in, with both for-profit nursing and for-profit um, uh, medical or veterinary, et cetera, if you're the leader of that organization, you, you really do have to look very, very closely at the academic outcomes. Because just by the nature of who you're serving, um, the NAVLE scores for veterinary medicine or the NCLEX scores for nursing or the USMLE for, for medical schools, it's not a given that you're going to get outstanding results. So, so how much you spend and, and, and the overall performance, financial performance of the school is, is very much of a top, top of the mind consideration you know, you're not you're not interested in in it, it, how much research dollars you attract is not a is not a focus for 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 profit schools. So I think that's the dichotomy. I think that's the dichotomy between leading a a not for profit organization versus a for profit educational institution. Right. So John, you and I have talked uh, in the past about the challenges that we face in the United States regarding shortages in nursing and physician talent. Uh, the pandemic, coupled with demographic shifts, uh, you and I are uh, aging, uh, aging uh, baby boomers. Uh, those things have only served to exacerbate the, the challenges in filling the pipeline. Uh, from your perspective, how do we increase accessibility to careers in healthcare and grow the pipeline of new nurses and doctors? Andy, it's it's a sixty four thousand dollar question. It's a sixty four thousand dollar question, and um, and a couple of things. Um, you know who oversees the, who's the governor, the organizations that are the governor of growth in terms of the schools and how big classes can be and how many starts they can have, et cetera, is, is um, uh, various accrediting bodies, is various accrediting bodies. And, you know, for medical schools, it's LCME, the Licensing Commission on Medical Education, you know, for for veterinary schools, it's the AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association, and um, and NCLEX. You know, has has uh, both state boards. I mean, uh, nursing schools rather have state boards and and other accrediting bodies. What happens is those accrediting bodies have a a dual charge, and that is they've got to ensure the quality of the organizations that they represent. But they also, quite frankly, at least in my opinion, are also looking out for, um, you know, various factors of what it means to be a doctor, what it means to be a nurse, et cetera. And some of those factors, quite frankly, are economic. And, and so the, the, the easy answer, the easy answer to your question is, well, we need more schools, we need more starts, we need, you know, et cetera. And that, you know, right now, Andy, um, uh, for example, there's only 33 AVMA accredited vet schools in the U.S. There's only 33. And, and uh, you know, it, it's a huge shortage. There's only approximately 100,000 veterinarians to serve, roughly 100 million domesticated dogs, 100 million domesticated cats, et cetera. So there's, there's in my opinion, a significant shortage of providers. The big thing, so so it's it's 
really the solution, in my opinion, is we've got to, number one, attract at the high school level, at the high school level, and really introduce what a fabulous career path, being a doctor, being a nurse, being a veterinarian, being at a, a number of allied health professions. So we've got to really introduce into at the high school level um, what those, how outstanding these professions are, but also the career path. How do you get there? And if you think about it, you know, you and I, just getting back to that point about mentors, you and I uh, were blessed. And I, you know, in, in conversations you and I have had over the years, you, you've mentioned to me some of your mentors. And again, I, I mentioned one of mine. Those students in high school, particularly if they're coming from lower socioeconomic backgrounds or more atypical backgrounds, they, they don't have the benefit of having a father or, or a cousin or an uncle, whatever, who, who you know, are doctors or, or financial planners, et cetera. So they, they, really, they really don't know what the path is. Right. So I think we've got to do a much, much better job of reaching back into, at a very formative state, these, these, um, uh, uh, these potential applicants. And then I think once you know, we do have to address the supply and demand imbalance, just to, just to say a couple of things, just to give you some, the state of Florida, for example, I did an interview with the state, uh, some folks from the state of Florida a number of years ago. By 2025, they're projecting a shortage of 55,000 um, physicians in the state of Florida. And, and you know, the, the, the reality, which I think we all appreciate and realize, it's not a shortage of doctors on the most, uh, most affluent areas, on Brickell Avenue or whatever. It's in the underserved areas. Right. It's really the underserved areas. So, so I say it to you because we do have to, um, you know, increase the, the supply. And we also have to make sure that, that we're reaching and introducing um, early on um, what a terrific career uh, health professions are. Yeah. Uh, as a follow-up, uh, and I think we're, we're going in this direction, how do we improve the diversity of the physician workforce? Uh, it's still far too male, white, et cetera. Uh, how, how do we get more diversity in, in the field? Yeah. It, it, again, Andy, I think it, it does. There's really three things that I will um, – Posit for 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 us today. The first one is a lot of the criteria which we decide, uh, you know, who goes on to become a physician or something or a nurse or whatever. A lot of those criteria and those, those selection criteria are outdated and outmoded. And what I'm getting at is, you know, uh, the big weeder out course is organic chemistry. You know, if if you do. Yeah. Well, in organic chemistry, then they they ordain you that you 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 can be a physician, um, and and if you don't do well, you you fundamentally end your career. Right. And and so there's a number of those courses, organic chemistry, physics, etc., that in one way um, discriminate toward those who are better prepared, that are better prepared to, uh, uh, you know, uh, to to go on and and do well in those courses, etc. So I think I think the admissions criteria is 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 a big place. You know, the prereqs is what I'm yeah. what I'm trying yeah. to articulate. The prereqs is is a big thing for us to look at. Um, the second thing is 
is that, again, I do believe that introducing and providing opportunities early on to populations that don't have the, have those mentors really don't have the career path. And so there's, there's it, 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 you know, it's a variation of, of, for lack of a better word, kind of career days or, or, you know, almost job fairs where you're going and you're introducing and then you're providing resources to help those young people who don't have the mentors, who don't, you know, can't turn to their mother or father and say, you know, what do I need to do to get into medical school or nursing school? So I think we've got to provide the resources and the exposure is, is the second part to it. And then the third thing is, you know, I, I really do believe that, as, as we've said, role models are keenly important, you know, role models, mentors, et cetera. So I think we have to make a concerted effort to really showcase, for lack of a better word, um, the diversity of the people who are currently operating. And again, I think what we said is, is it's not diverse enough, but clearly there are, I, I have a wonderful friend and, um, and he um, uh, is, is the uh, chief of trauma surgery at the University of Chicago. And, and there could be, in my opinion, no greater role model you know, for someone to aspire to. And, um, and he, was, he was born in St. Croix and made his way to the US, et cetera. Um, but so I think taking individuals um, who do come from diverse backgrounds, who you know, early on didn't have all the privileges and found a way and really showing them and using them um, as, as um, icons of, of what can be achieved and the fact that, that, that uh, you know, the path is, is definitely obtainable. So I'll stop there. I think it's, it's, the, it's the prereq requirements. It's really introducing and providing the support and resources. And then the third thing is, I think, is showing, you know, showcasing the success stories. Yeah. Well, thanks, John. Uh, we're going to take a really short break uh, for uh, to, for a little commercial on a book that I wrote called The Balanced Business, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Andy Tempty. Over the past 35 years, I've learned a lot about business leadership, and I'd like to share those lessons with you. Ask yourself, how do I create an effective, sustainable management operating system? How do I design smooth workflows to better serve the customer? How do I balance organizational trust with accountability? The Balanced Business describes the practical, step-by-step -step process you need to answer these questions. Order your copy today wherever books are sold. And we're back with John Danher talking about the world of medical education. Uh, John, I've been thinking a lot lately about the role of mentorship in the world of healthcare, and there seems to be a distinct difference between the role that mentorship plays in the world of physicians and physician education and the nursing community and what, uh, you know, talking to my, my son and others in the profession, mentoring seems to be much more prevalent for physicians. What advice do you have for nursing leaders to improve mentorship in the nursing profession, to improve retention, career progression, and success for the average nurse? Yeah. So, Andy, um, it's a crucial question you raise. And let me put forth 
what I believe is the reason for, uh, uh, for what you've just described. When a medical student finishes medical school, there's pretty much universal consensus that they're not, regardless of how good they are, they're not ready to hit the ground running. And so what they do is they go through a period of residency. And residency, be it three years, be it four years, be it five years if it's surgery or even longer, um, is a period for all intents and purposes in which the young physicians are, are to be mentored. It's a period that they're to be mentored. That, that's the goal of it. So that they can be shaped, that they can be um, uh, trained, um, and can, for lack of a better word, be job ready at the end of their residencies. And, and as you said, it, it's a period during which there's frequent interactions with an attending. Okay, there's frequent oversight, there's frequent yeah. you know, interactions with the attending. Now, let's compare that and contrast that with nursing. When nurses finish up, you know, when they finish up a, um, uh, a ADN, associate's degree of nursing, they finish up a BSN, um, et cetera, they, they go right to work. They go right to work. And what happens is years ago, they used to quote that it takes six months and $65,000 to get a, a new graduate, regardless of whether they come from the University of Pennsylvania or, or University of Washington or, or Purdue Global, that it, it takes that long to get them to be job ready. In point of fact, now it's, it's longer and it, and, it, and, it, and it costs more. It's longer and it costs more. And then, Andy, to add to that, um, of new hires, of new nursing graduate hires, their attrition rate, um, you know, a year in is about one-third. It's about 33%. So one out of three are not working at the institution that they started at. And I think it's directly related to your point. It's directly related to your point in that, you know, part of mentorship is is developing that that um, relationship with individuals in the organization um, that that you have confidence will not only help bring you along um, in terms of skills, but will also be looking out for your career, be looking to see where you can advance, et cetera. What I think the issue is, quite frankly, and, and you and I were talking before the show, I, I happened to be the recipient of, uh, of an inpatient stay recently. Um, what I think the issue is, is that, you know, exacerbated by COVID, by a number of things, by, by the stress of the job, et cetera, there's huge turnover um, going on in nursing. And, and there's not, it, 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 the, the demands, and the supply of new nurses and the supply of nurses is so acute that that there's really in the in the model is such and the model is such is that nurses are expected to be job ready on day one. Right. They're expected to be job ready on day one. And what happens again, as somebody who just went through the process and was an inpatient, they're not just the way physicians wouldn't be ready day one 
you know, nurses are not ready day one, but they don't have the luxury of that three, four year, five year residency to hone their skills. And so what happens to them, what happens to new graduates is that what they have to learn, and, and I'm gonna just share with you and, and your audience what I, what I think is an interesting uh, observation. Um, they've, it's, it's very compressed. What they have to learn is very compressed and they have to deploy those skills and learnings very early on. And I think that leads to burnout. I think it leads to uncertainty. It leads to a whole bunch of things that, that you know, uh, uh, result in, in the problems that we, we confront in the profession of nursing. One, one quick thing, here's the part I wanted to share with you. Um, when I was at Elsevier, we looked to address that issue of the high turnover rate and, and the attrition that was occurring and the fact that it, it took a long time to get nurses on board. So we did a survey and we asked the chief nursing officers of numerous um, uh, hospitals of all sizes, big multi, you know, uh, uh, academic medical centers and small community hospitals, et cetera. What came back, which was a real eye opener for us. And we, you know, I, I had thought, well, you know, where these new nurses don't have is they don't have the skills. They don't have the skills, the cognitive skills of, of being able to dress a wound or be able to do, you know, put in IVs or whatever. I thought it was purely um, a, a, a cognitive skills. And what to a, to a CNO, to a chief nursing officer across the board, what actually came back was a need for the non-cognitive skills and to be able to do things like time management, to be able to do things, you know, working on a diverse team, to be able to convey to a family that their loved one has passed or whatever. And so what we did was we built a suite uh, of training that was more targeted to those non-cognitive things that, that the CNOs were, were looking for. Now, the point the point of not only making that an interesting observation, but those are often the skills that a mentor or a role model would teach you if, if they had time and, right. and they were designated to do that, et cetera. How do you communicate with a family that their loved one has just passed? So I'll stop there. You know, I think it's, it's fundamentally the way we've set up the system that we expect nurses to be job ready on day one. Like any new graduate, they're not. And, and we really haven't put into place um, a process, the mentoring, the, the role models, et cetera. Um, and I think a lot of it's got to do with the incredible need and demand for nurses that we just gotta, you know, we gotta get them to the front line as quickly as we can. Yeah, it's that, uh, you know, we, we, we talk about the, the, the shortage of nurses and doctors, and it seems to be uh, really kind of two different things going on uh, there, uh, you know, in on the nursing side, it's a turnover. It's really a turnover issue. If you're able to solve that attrition issue with stronger mentorship, with more onboarding and kind of grace, if you will, in the educational process to uh, pull folks uh, through the uh, through those first six months, year, year and a half of their tenure uh, through mentorship, through guidance, through more uh, more education. 
that would be a big uh, help on the nursing side. And then on the physician side, uh, certainly the choke point for as as I view one of them as I view it is as you've said is the just the sheer number of institutions, the number of uh, places that uh, are you know for residency uh, uh, options that are out there, uh, you know. The, so that seems to be the one of the real choke points uh, on on the physician side. Uh, so. Uh, you know, we, we, we kind of paint, if, if I sit here as a non-medical professional and I listen to the popular press, it's kind of painted, the shortage is kind of painted the roughly the same way between the two parts of the profession. Uh, but talking to you, it seems like, uh, like mentorship and guidance could really be uh, a strong uh, solution on the, on the nursing side of the equation. So, so thanks for that, John. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. So John, as we wrap things up, uh, two lightning round questions for you. Lightning round question number one, I'm giving you access to a time machine. You can send a message to an earlier version of John Danaher. What's the message and what previous version of yourself do you choose to send it to? No, it, it, it's a wonderful question, and it causes me to think. Um, I think I would, uh, I would, I would take it, quite frankly, right back to when I uh, my my first job out of business school was to be the assistant to the president of a um, of a, one of the Harvard Hospital teaching hospitals, and so I would take the message back to 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 the start. And I think what the message is, is that um, it's very easy. I, I don't think, you know, apropos of the title of, of, of your, your uh, podcast, I, I don't think I did a great job of balancing things. I don't think I did a great job of balancing things. And when I say things, you know, I think what I tended to do and, and still to this day tend to do is to over-index on, on work. I tend to over-index on work. And, and, um, uh, and, when I, and when you, even when you think about all the burnout, be it in nurses or be it in physicians, a lot of it is that this new generation um, is looking for more of a balance. And I think that, you know, just quite frankly, being a bit of a dinosaur, I think I viewed you know, that balance is, is a weakness or a lack of commitment, et cetera. And I think that they probably have it more right than I've had it. And so I think that the, 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 the guidance I would give my, my young self would be to strive for more um, uh, balance in terms of mental, spiritual, um, physical health than I, than I perhaps did. And, and um, so I'll, I'll stop there. I think that's probably, you know, if, if I could use that time machine to go back and, and give myself a, a message, that would be it. Yeah. Well, uh, again, uh, listening to the stories that uh, uh, my son, uh, Bran our, our son Brandon tells about his experience, uh, there are a lot of physicians uh, who are nearing the end of their career who need to get in that time machine and go back and tell an earlier version of themselves to kind of get over themselves uh, because it's, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to make significant change in terms of that uh, work-life balance, especially for physicians, also nurses. 
and uh, and the the quote unquote old guard is still saying, "Well, I did it this way, so you should you need exactly. to do it too." And that's just not very helpful. It turns out. <laughs> no, no, it really is. And and you know, as a result, Andy, you know, as you know so well, the system still. I mean, it's it's evolving, but that that thinking that mentality is baked into the system. Yeah. I mean, again, even, even our things, you know, even our thoughts about um, uh, being on call, you know, it was, it was considered a badge of courage. You know, if you were on call every third night and stayed up all night and, and did X, Y, Z. Now, some of that's changed, but again, you know, how residents are paid and, and, you know, new nurses are paid, et cetera. So I think that there's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot more to do. There's a lot more to yeah. do. So, John, final question of the show. We are all works in progress. What are you focused on right now in your personal journey of growth as a leader? Yeah, I, I think, Andy, it gets back to the message that I, um, you know, that that I, I, I said I would bring to my younger self. And that is, again, having this significant surgery uh, a couple of weeks ago, it's, it's really, and, and being at the age that I am, it's really emphasizing the need to have that balance. And, and again, as, as I alluded to, I have not always had that balance. I haven't had that balance, you know, in, in my diet. I haven't had that balance in terms of my exercise. I haven't had that balance in terms of my spirituality. Um, I haven't had that balance in, in a number of areas. I could keep on, on going on. So, so that's what I'm that's what I'm working on to try to achieve, you know, more of an equilibrium and and a, you know, for lack of a better word, using a medical term, a homeostasis that that in, in many times, in many instances in my career and in my life haven't haven't existed. And so that's that's what I'm focused on and working on currently. Yeah, thank you, John. Uh, you know, our uh, the listeners of this show, uh, our, our audience, uh, many of them are early, early career or even mid career. Uh, please, 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 uh, if you're in that group, do listen to John and I about the importance of striving for balance in one's life. Uh, we, I, uh, and we are creating this public good to help you uh, get better in your career and find that uh, appropriate uh, sense of balance. So John, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. My name is Andy Tempty. This is the Balancing Act podcast. You can find us on all the major links, subscribe, rate, and most importantly, share this public good within your networks. Uh, the show is produced by Nicholas Tempty, and we will see you next time.